Jim Minnery here with uh, I'm glad you said that Fairbanks dominates in terms of conservatives winning elections and Sarah Palin embraces the LGBTQIA community we'll talk about that here in just a few minutes I want to thank our friends over at uh, or friends John and Sandy Powers as always for supporting I'm glad you said that we're very grateful for that support so that we can uh, uh, be out across the um, the airwaves and on the podcasts so that you can uh, see what's going on in Alaska in terms of the intersection of faith and politics, the things you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. Um, anyway, we uh, are very pleased uh, before I uh, go into my short little monologue here at the beginning uh, to welcome Daniel Sur. He is uh, the managing attorney at the Liberty Justice Center, and uh, it's a phenomenal organization that you may not have heard of. There's fortunately a lot of good organizations um, across the country now, including uh, Alliance Defending Freedom and American Center for Law and Justice, Uh, but the Liberty Justice Center is yet another uh, exemplary organization that fights for constitutional rights of American families workers, advocates, and entrepreneurs. Daniel um, Daniel recently spoke at the Federalist Society, a group of conservative, strict constructionist attorneys in the state of Alaska uh, regarding ranked choice voting. And I was very enamored by it. It was not, I can't, I can't say it was very encouraging in terms of uh, what he had to say, but he's actually, uh, um, has filed a lawsuit in the Alaska Supreme Court, still waiting to hear on that, whether or not uh, they're going to make up some bizarre reason as to why it's constitutional, even though people's rights are being taken away through uh, ranked choice voting. And as you've likely noticed, uh, we have a current Democrat as our sole U.S. Congressperson, regardless, uh, despite the fact rather that uh, 60% of the people in the state of Alaska voted for a Republican, either in Nick Begich or Sarah Palin. So I'm looking forward to that chat. Um, hopefully you'll stick around for the, the final few segments on that uh, to talk about Daniel's take on ranked choice voting and, and how we lead, unfortunately, on that uh, limb going out as far as we possibly, possibly can to disenfranchise voters with this ranked choice voting jungle primary uh, nonsense. And hopefully sooner than later, it'll be something that's in our past. Um, but anyway, let's start off with, uh, with the news that uh, Sarah Palin recently uh, enthusiastically uh, accepted the endorsement of Log Cabin Republicans, uh, which is the gay uh, organization that uh, is aligned with Republican values, at least some of the Republican values in terms of liberty and, and freedom uh, regarding um, you know, some aspects of our lives, certainly not others, because that's the part that has caused a lot of Alaskans, myself included, to question what in the world she was thinking. Uh, You know, we we faced this issue before. I'm actually writing an article on it now. So hopefully if you sign up at akfamily.org or you get the Alaska Watchman or sometimes my articles are in Must Read Alaska, you'll see some more about it. But just my initial thoughts. Um, it was unnecessary, and it, it showed that she's very unpredictable. 
Um, it certainly doesn't mean at this stage that we're going to endorse as Alaska Family Action uh, Nick Baggage. Uh, he has, um, they, they both filled out our survey, and you can go to akvoter.com and see that, uh, see the survey and the questions that they responded to. But I think what's, um, you know, what's important is that both are fallen. Both are, are, are individuals that are going to let us down at some level, just like every politician is. But there was a call. Um, I know there has been by some folks to say, hey, listen, she really crossed the line in accepting this endorsement. Um, what does that mean? Um, you know, it means a lot of different things. One of the things that I think, uh, you know, that we need to reiterate is that she, um, Sarah Palin, that is, um, filled out our survey, and we talked very specifically about, um, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment, which is uh, legislation currently in Congress um, that would overturn existing pro-life uh, policies, mandate public funding of abortion, and undermine women's civil rights protections due to, uh, you know, claims that uh, prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex, which can be interpreted to mean gender identity and sexual inclusion or sexual orientation, rather. Um, you know, we asked Sarah Palin about the uh, Equality Act, which proposes to create special protected categories based on sexual orientation and gender identity, um, and actually poses a grave threat to religious liberty, you know, conscious protections and privacy in intimate, intimate facilities like the Downtown Hope Center that had to, if, if they had not won that lawsuit, would have had to have welcomed a uh, transgender man uh, you know, someone who identified, I guess it's a transgender female, but a, a man, uh, a very burly, dangerous looking man into a facility for uh, women, uh, you know, there for domestic violence issues. Um, so there's a lot of questions about what the log cabin Republicans stand for, although they're Republicans and in some way. Um, that was disturbing for a lot of people. The reality also is that Nick Begich, um is... Uh, pro-life to the point of rape and incest. So he ha he holds those as exceptions. And so to that point, they're both, they both fall short in terms of what we would consider, um, you know, a, a clear endorsement of either side. What we do want to um, note more than anything, and I will put this in the article, is that, uh, that you need to rank the red. There's a possibility, I think it's probably remote, I don't want to be a naysayer, but I think it is remote that we could recapture uh, a Republican in that seat if more um, Nick Begich supporters rank Sarah second and if more Sarah supporters rank Nick second. And I don't know if that's going to happen. We're going to do our part to scream that from the mountaintops um, as much as possible. But anyway, um, moving on to some uh, news that is very encouraging, uh, the uh, Fairbanks elections. And we were involved in that uh, very um, intimately as Alaska Family Action. We sent out uh, voter guides for, uh, for the Fairbanks elections. They elected a new mayor, David Pruse, who's conservative. They have, um, you know, really, uh, it's, it's a, a model in many ways for how to recapture, uh, to recapture, you know, community councils and, um, and assemblies and school boards. I mean, it was, it was something to behold. I mean, it truly is uh, a phenomenal resort. I mean, a, a, a phenomenal outcome. 
um, in terms of what transpired in uh, Fairbanks yesterday. And, and because our voter guide was set out so broadly, almost 90 churches in Fairbanks, thank God, praise God, uh, were distributing or distributed our voter guides to let folks know about who is aligned with them biblically. Um, it was uh, it's something that we have to duplicate. Um, Suzanne Downing at the, at Must Read Alaska called it a red wave. Um, you know, we just I, I have I have to review all of the seats, but I think we won almost every seat, uh, and it's just something to behold. Um, you know, the uh, the reality is that we can duplicate that in other places. We need to duplicate that in other places. Get the body of Christ. Get people who are conservatives sitting in pews to understand how to vote and have pastors bold enough to be able to give them that information. So anyway, um, we want to now uh, take our first break. We're going to be back in just a minute with... Uh, um, you know, Mr. Pruz, he is again with Liberty Justice Center. We're going to be talking about ranked choice voting right after. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Jim Minnery here on I'm Glad You Said That. Very honored uh, to have Daniel Sir. He's the uh, one of the managing attorneys at the Liberty Justice Center, where he spends uh, most every day on the front lines to fight to preserve our rights and liberties. Daniel, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, of course, Jim. Thanks for having me. So I got to meet you. Actually, we didn't um, chat. I asked a question uh, at the event, but it's very encouraging that a Federalist Society is uh, is being regenerated, I guess. We've had some moments over the years to kind of get a chapter up here, and uh, we're very uh, grateful that we can start animating and equipping uh, conservative, strict constructionist uh, attorneys to, to galvanize in the state of Alaska. So thanks for being at the event the other day. It sounds like you've spent a decent amount of time in Alaska with your work on some other issues regarding um, Alaska. But before we get into some of that, and then also the reason why we were, uh, were on the line today, which is the ranked choice voting, um, and your thoughts on that, maybe give folks an idea of uh, who Daniel Sewer is and what brought you to this place. Give us a little idea of your journey to this point where you're at right now. Well, thanks, Jim. So uh, I'm a managing attorney at the Liberty Justice Center. We're a nationwide uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest law firm. Uh, that's a fancy way of saying I've got a great job. I get sued. I, I get paid to sue bureaucrats. Um, Yay! I exactly. They 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 need the suing sometimes. So uh, our firm, Liberty Justice Center, uh, we represent people, everyday Americans, uh, whose whose rights have been violated. And and really, our specialty is is we take on what we think are big cases, big important cases to vindicate uh, the constitutional rights of, of everyday Americans. So um, a, a big portion of our work uh, relates to free speech, uh, and free speech is protecting people from cancel culture. Free speech is ensuring that um, students have uh, free speech rights at school, especially as uh, woke curriculum and critical race theory take over more and more of our schools. Uh, and, and free speech is, is campaign finance freedom. Uh, making sure that people can participate in politics uh, with with the full freedom to speak up 
in the marketplace of ideas. So that's a big chunk of our work. Uh, a big chunk of our work is related to educational freedom, recognizing that parents and students know best uh, how to educate their, their kids. And so uh, advocating for school choice, advocating for exciting new models in education like micro schools, uh, really trying to break the monopoly of public education uh, and especially public uh, teachers unions uh, and make sure that it's parents who are in charge of, of education. And then the, the final third of our work focuses on uh, really uh, the, the crisis we've been through in the last two years as a country and the massive overreaction on the part of government to restrict our freedoms uh, during this pandemic. And so we uh, litigate on behalf of people subject to uh, illegal vaccine mandates. Uh, we litigate on behalf of people subject to just all these different restrictions uh, on their freedom that we've seen in the last two years. I know we feel like the pandemic is over. I know we've even had the president say the pandemic is over, uh, but these laws are still on the books and they are affecting uh, the freedom of people in blue states and in people in, in lots of individual professions. And so we continue to fight for uh, medical freedom for Americans to make these choices for themselves uh, and not have government continue to use this uh, so-called pandemic that, that, that apparently is over now, finally, uh, to, to regulate and run the lives of, of people. Wow. You know, it's interesting. We could have a full show on each of those subjects or, or a couple <laughs> shows on each of those subjects because it really animates me and many Alaskans that are tuned in today in terms of school choice, in terms of, you know, uh, all of the issues that you've mentioned. But we are limited in time, of course, and so we want to focus on what Alaskans are, are addressing right now in the uh, in terms of these elections with ranked choice voting. One of the things that stood out at your um, presentation um, at the, the local chapter of the Federalist Society that we had here in Anchorage recently was that you said we are uh, – you know, one of the states were campaign, and this is somewhat related, I guess, but that in terms of APOC, the Alaska Public Offices Commission, and how how engaged they are in trying to squelch, um, you know, people that are out trying to impact elections and, and the kind of uh, reporting that we're required to, to um, you know, provide as, a, as an organization, we've been, you know, ha having, we've had to stand before the tribunal of the APOC on multiple occasions because, you know, a T wasn't crossed or an I wasn't dotted in, in the, the left. The progressives have, have full-time people that, that skate through all of those reports. And it's, it's stunning how, how much of a, um, of a, how oppressing it is to our First Amendment rights when you really get into this and realize that, my gosh, they're doing everything in their power to make us identify our donors, which takes up, like you mentioned, sometimes a third of an ad. And of course, they're not paying for that. The government is making us pay for these regulations. But the, 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 tell us about how you got involved in this ranked choice voting environment here in Alaska. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. So ballot measure two uh, was on uh, your ballot last, last, I guess, two years ago, last election. Uh, and it passed by the narrowest of margins. And it, it really transforms Alaska elections uh, in very real, practical ways for, for Alaskan voters. Um, so the first change that, that was made uh, is this ranked choice voting concept, the idea that rather than having a, a traditional ballot where you decide between candidates, 
uh, we now have, have this system of ranking candidates. Uh, the second change is what we call, in political science, we call like a jungle primary, uh, which is um, this kind of wide open primary where rather than having parties nominate their candidates and choose who's going to represent them on the ballot, we take that power away from parties and we just kind of blow it wide open. Um, and then the third part is these campaign finance changes. And, and those, you know, have significant uh, effects on what organizations like uh, Alaska Family Action and, and others can do to participate in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, there, are, there are new restrictions. There are new disclosure and disclaimer requirements, all of which just fuel this cancel culture that we're in. It, it just empowers the bullies in our society to go after people who stand up uh, and speak out on, on these important issues. And it just makes it harder for us to have what I think are clean, fair elections that are focused on ideas and policy rather than being focused on um, who's paying for what. We should have our elections on what are the ideas, what are the policies that these candidates are going to advance, and that should be our focus uh, rather than continuing to empower uh, the bullies in cancel culture who are just going to target people uh, because of the issues and candidates they support. Well, one of the quotes that I read in, uh, I can't remember where, actually, but Senator Tom Cotton, uh, a Republican out of Arkansas, tweeted uh, the day that Poltola was named the, the winner of the temporary seat. He says, quote, 60% of Alaska Voters voted for a Republican, but thanks to a convoluted process and ballot exhaustion, which disenfranchises voters, a Democrat won. And I think a lot of people that voted for ballot measure two are, are thinking the same thing. It's like, what just happened? And it just shows that, that bumper stickers and sloganeering works. Um, you know, unfortunately, both sides use it when campaigning, but you know, they were very effective in that $7 million of out-of-state money that came into Alaska. And many of the quotes that we heard were that a lot of those folks that were investors in, in Ballot Measure 2 said, Alaska's a great playground um, in terms of coming up and spending a relatively modest amount of money and being able to change things. And of course, that's what's happening on a, on a national level now. But as, as far as um, a state that is most engaged with ranked choice voting, would you say that we now as a state lead the nation? Yeah, absolutely, Jim. It's, it's no doubt the case uh, that Alaska is um, the furthest out there on, on one end uh, in terms of fully embracing uh, ranked choice voting for every office, whether it's state office or federal office. Uh, no, other, no other state comes close. Uh, the only other place that we've seen ranked choice voting really used uh, to a significant degree thus far has been the city of New York, and it's been a disaster. Uh, and you don't have to take my word for it. I'm not usually a guy who quotes the New York Times, uh, but even the New York Times uh, recognized the chaotic uh, nature of, of ranked choice voting in New York. And one of the interesting things about the fight over ranked choice voting in New York uh, was that people from communities of color and immigrant communities were among those most opposed to ranked choice voting. Uh, and that's because ranked choice voting is, is hard. It's complicated. Uh, it's not immediately intuitive. And so for 
people who are uh, new to the United States or whose um, second language is English, but but we're primarily in another language. Like the advocates for those communities uh, were were telling the policymakers, like this is going to be a significant challenge, and, and it's going to end up in the practical result of people being disenfranchised. And in fact, that's then what happened. New York adopted it anyway, and fully 15% of ballots uh, didn't count in the final round of voting uh, because voters weren't able to vote the ballot um, correctly. And so we end up with, with real uh, voters being disenfranchised, uh, not having their ballots counted uh, because of this convoluted system. And then, as you point out, Jim, the other effect is that we end up with a red state like Alaska sending a blue candidate to Congress. And like that should cause us to scratch our heads and ask, is this a good system? Is this a system that we thought we were getting uh, when we voted for ballot measure two? Folks, we're speaking with Daniel Sir. He's a, a managing attorney at the Liberty Justice Center. We'll be right back after this short break. Stick around. We've got two more segments here, and I'm glad you said that. And uh, Hey guys, welcome back. Jim Minnery here with Daniel Sir. Uh, he's a managing attorney at the Liberty Justice Center, um, and I, I believe you're in Chicago, right? Yes, correct. Okay, I mean you guys are a national group, but anyway, he's he's had some experience. But we're not from um, the swamp. We're from real estate. <laughs> I like that. I love that. Um, you know, the 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 reality I believe is that most Alaskans were duped on ballot measure two, and that they thought they were getting something that, in fact, was not the case. And there's buyer's remorse. We have the ability, I believe, after two full years to to change it. We can do that either, I think, statutorily in the in the legislature after two full years, or we can also um, do it at a constitutional convention, which is one of the things that uh, the Alaska Family Action has been advocating for. But in terms of some of the thoughts that people have, I've heard over the last year or so is that doesn't this seem unconstitutional in terms of one person, one vote. How uh, you had some interesting thoughts on that in terms of what the, the 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 federal government says about our right to vote, and I can't say they were super encouraging um, in terms of us moving up through the circuit and getting to the U.S. Supreme Court, which we think could could take care of this. But that doesn't sound like that's really an angle. Am I right in that assumption? Yeah, so there are serious constitutional problems uh, with lots of ballot measure two, uh, but there are different legal principles at play, and that sort of dictates what court uh, is the right court to to pursue different arguments. So uh, for ranked choice voting and for uh, jungle primary, uh, the reality is that the federal government, the federal constitution, gives states a fair amount of flexibility about how to structure their elections. That as part of our federalist system, uh, the founding fathers wrote into the Constitution uh, that states, specifically state legislatures, have the right to determine the time, place, and manner of holding their elections. Um, And so some states do it differently, right? Louisiana and Virginia 
do their statewide elections in odd number years when everybody else does them in even numbered years, right? They're just two oddballs, um, and the Constitution allows them to do that. And so there's, there's flexibility for a state like Alaska uh, to choose whether or not it wants ranked choice voting or, or some other system. However, Alaska has made that choice already in its state constitution. In, in the 1950s, when Alaska's state constitution was written, uh, specifically for the office of governor, there's a provision in the state constitution that says the, the governor is uh, the candidate who wins the greatest number of votes, is the guy who gets elected or the gal who gets elected. Now, you might think that's obvious, right, Jim? I mean, you would just say, well, of course the person who's elected gets the greatest number of votes. But if you go into the historical record, that question was actually raised at the Alaska Constitutional Convention. Isn't this just repetitive? Isn't that always the guy who wins is the person with the greatest number of votes? And the explanation was that that was written intentionally to say we want a simple system where if there are multiple candidates on the ballot, you know, three or four candidates, different parties on the ballot, that whoever wins the greatest number, which could be a plurality, but not necessarily a majority, that person gets elected. And yet what we have with ranked choice voting is a system that forces us into these multiple rounds of, of what we call instant runoff voting, of, of pairing uh, and dropping candidates in a way that, that pushes eventually to a majority. Uh, and that's specifically the sort of system that Alaska's founders rejected um, and so there's actually a lawsuit on this very question. Uh, it's at the state Supreme Court. Uh, and the state Supreme Court has kind of given us an indication uh, that they're not going to buy this argument. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they're going to get around it. Uh, but as you know well, Jim, uh, the Alaska Supreme Court is not necessarily bound, uh, it seems, too tightly to, uh, to the same principles that the Federal Society uh, that I was, I was speaking at the, the chapter this week, that, that, that conservative, you know, originalist, textualist lawyers uh, might use as their approach to constitutional interpretation. Well, when are you supposed to find out? I mean, I know you mentioned you're still waiting, and um, you know they, they've taken years for certain cases uh, that we've been involved with. Um, and so, at some point, they're going to have to issue their decision. And I guess I'm unclear as to. So, you're saying that on a federal level, for the Murkowski Chewbacca race, um, there's not a lot of options for us. But in terms of the state constitution, if the state Supreme Court uh, upholds, you know, ranked choice voting, despite it being unconstitutional and not um, the original intent of our founders, what do we have other than just trying to change it through, I mean, even if we change it through a constitutional amendment um, or uh at least through the typical legislative process, the, the court can still overturn that, right? There's always a possibility that, that judicial activists will do anything, right? One of the things that I think is just hard for uh, people like you and me who, who live in this space on a, a full-time basis uh, and is frustrating for the citizens and, and constituencies we serve uh, is just this knowledge that the judges seem like they can just do things sometimes, uh, and they're not, you know, judicial activists are not going to be uh, limited by um, the traditional uh, principles of the rule of law. Now, all of that said, uh, 
uh, it is still the case uh, that in America the people are in charge. Uh, and so if the people in Alaska working through either a constitutional process or even just through the, the regular legislative profit process or through another proposition, right, like a, a proposition, uh, a ballot measure, can repeal a previous ballot measure. Um, like ultimately the citizens of Alaska are in charge, uh, and if they are unsatisfied with how this has been working out, if the experiment's a failure, uh, then they should make their voices heard and and see policy change as a result. Well, I mean, we did that. Alaskans feel bruised in some level because we were involved in ballot measure, another ballot measure, too, back in 2010 regarding parental notification. And, you know, that, ironically, that was something that the former Chief Justice uh, Dana Fabe, when she uh, wrote the opinion overturning the parental consent law, said, I think no less than 30 times in her opinion, <laughs> excuse me, that, um, you know, we, we find parental consent to be unconstitutional based on the privacy clause of the Alaska State Constitution, but we believe that notification would be something that we would be open to or that would be more um, acceptable constitutionally. And, and, and she mentioned that term multiple times in her ruling overturning um, consent, and then we took that to the people, had a statewide ballot measure that passed overwhelmingly for notification, and then they still overturned it and called it unconstitutional based on the privacy clause. So it, it wasn't sincere, it wasn't genuine, it wasn't uh, accurate, but they did it anyway. And so, you know, you find a lot of disenfranchised, um, despondent voters that say, you know, we, we take them at their word or, or we do something and they still have ultimate control. And so in regards to the abortion issue, at least in Alaska, uh, we have uh, introduced legislation, or Senator Shelley Hughes has, who actually attended that Federalist Society meeting. She was one of the senators who, were, uh, who was there. But she's introduced legislation similar to what uh, Kansas did recently, and unfortunately they failed. But there's, I think, six or seven states, Louisiana I think being the latest, that have that constitutional amendment clarifying the neutrality of their state constitution on the issue of abortion, and apparently that's been very successful. I mean, it's written in the constitution. This constitution is silent on the issue of abortion or the funding thereof, and there's nothing then that the Supreme Court can do, and so they've been able to pass good legislation protecting the unborn. Um, it seems as though that might have to take place despite the fact that you're saying that our constitution already has um, you know, a prohibition, as it were, against ranked choice voting, but we do we just have to make that more explicit? Is that your take? Yeah, Jim. So uh, let me take the, the, the pro-life part of your question first. So I know many people read uh, the Dobbs decision, right, the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, historic decision returning um, abortion to, to the states, right? And, and many people read that as returning it to state legislators, that we we're going to allow our elected officials uh, to determine policy in each individual state on, on this kind of obviously controversial and, and incredibly important issue. Uh, the reality, though, is that in many places, the issue is not returning to legislators or elected policymaking branches of government. It's returning to judges. We're just replacing one set of judges determining abortion policy on the U.S. Supreme Court to a different set of judges. Uh, right. determining these policy issues on, on state courts. Um, and, and people are, are right to be uh, frustrated by that. Um, 
because ultimately, unless the Constitution uh, speaks to it one way or the other, right? You mentioned states that have explicit uh, pro-life or, or neutrality clauses. A state could equally have an inexplicit pro-choice clause in their state constitution, right? But that would at least be the people making those decisions uh, rather than unelected judges. And that's the second important point, Jim, is I think for for Alaska and Wait, hold on one second. Daniel, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. We're right at our end of our break. I apologize. We'll be right back with that. Speaking with uh, Daniel Sir, he's the managing attorney at the Liberty Justice Center. We're talking about ranked choice voting, and I had to cut you off at that, that last break, Daniel. Sorry about that. But um, tell us about that second point. I mean, the reality is that we need some encouragement because there's a lot of folks up here who, who are feeling disenfranchised. Well, one thing I would encourage Alaskans to look at is how you choose your judges, how you choose your judges, that when you have um, what's sometimes called the Missouri Plan, uh, which was an idea born in Missouri, but has been adopted in a number of other states. Uh, it empowers bar association insiders and uh, other kind of self-interested parties to choose judges rather than having politically accountable judicial selection, whether that's on something like a federal model, uh, so just like the president appoints judges and they're confirmed by the Senate, uh, many states have a, a similar model where the governor appoints uh, and they're confirmed by the Senate or having um, just the people elect directly. So my home state of Wisconsin, uh, we have elections for, for our judges. Uh, but Tennessee, for instance, actually just amended their state constitution to get rid of the Missouri plan to, to end control of judicial selection by legal insiders and instead move to uh, the federal model of um, having the governor appoint with, with Senate confirmation. But ultimately, you know, when judges have so much power in our society and in our government, it is important that uh, they be uh, tied to uh, the rule of law, and, and that's why judicial selection uh, becomes so important. Well, we put that in one of our videos on the Convention Yes site, because it's one of the angles that we talk about, um, you know, and why we want to advance a constitutional convention is the Missouri plan. And uh, one of the quotes that we found in Vic Fisher's book, who, who's the only surviving member um, of our, the original delegation for the Alaska State Constitutional Convention, is that he, uh, he put in his book a quote from a consultant's group that they had paid to come up to comment on a number of issues, but they asked specifically these consultants from outside in the lower 48 what they thought of our judicial selection proposal for the Constitution. And the quote is, um, no state constitution has ever gone this far in placing one of the three coordinate branches of the government beyond the reach of democratic controls. democratic controls. We feel that in its desire to preserve the integrity of the courts, the convention has gone farther than is necessary or safe in putting them in the hands of a private professional group. And so 
we we had the warning. We asked for the 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 consultant's report. We got it. We have one of the most uh, um, you know, one of the, the judicial selection processes that give the power to the bench or the, the bar association more so than any other state. And they ignored that. And not only that, but Vic Fisher says in his book that that consultant report never made it to the full delegation floor. And so it's fascinating to me that he, as a, a strong liberal um, himself, was able to provide that. We just are trying to get that message out to folks that we were told at the beginning that this is, gives more power to three or 4,000 people max that are in the Bar Association, a tiny sliver of the Alaska populace, absolute control of a third branch of the government. And so we're hoping we can change that. But um, in terms of ranked choice voting, what are you seeing on a national level um, after we uh, made the mistake up here in Alaska? Has it animated some folks uh, in different states across the country to move forward? Or do you think it's, uh, um, you know, animated others to say, no, we definitely don't want to go that route? No, I, I think Alaska is the canary in the coal mine. And other states are are, are seeing what's happened and are having a, a strong negative reaction. Uh, and that's true in, in two important ways, I think, Jim. One is the very practical uh, reality that voters are confused and they don't like the new ballot, um, that, that it is something that is hard for uh, communities of color, immigrant communities, elderly folks who are used to a particular ballot. Like it's, it is just a, a difficult ballot to understand. And so there's just been a lot of voter dissatisfaction. Uh, and, and policymakers in other states hear that and are, are reluctant to adopt it. The second reason that, that folks don't like it uh, it goes to the quote from from Tom Cotton, is it's not actually resulting in representatives who are representative of the people they're supposed to be serving. Um, That's right. that, that we're seeing uh, a mismatch between the desires of these these states and the, the voters in these states and the, the people who actually end up getting elected uh, because of the way uh, the system is undemocratic, it disenfranchises certain people, and it, it encourages this weird gamesmanship on the part of, of voters. And so people in other states are, are seeing that, and I think reacting negatively, but that doesn't change the fact, to your earlier comment, that there are, are wealthy people in the lower 48 who are committed to this issue, who want to fund uh, putting it in more and more states. Uh, and so I think this is a fight that, that is still probably only beginning uh, on a national scale, and uh, everybody's going to have eyes on Alaska this fall and, and in upcoming elections uh, as, we, as we watch what happens in the last frontier and, and other states decide is this something that's going to spread. Yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking that the, uh, that the late Don Young, you know, the congressman that had the most tenure of uh, historically, I think 49 years, um, of any other U.S. congressman, and uh, and now all of a sudden we have a Democrat, despite the fact that uh, that 60% of the people voted Republican. And it's not to say that every Republican is conservative. We certainly know that there's a, enough Republicans that are unfortunately voting for uh, U.S. Senate candidate Lisa Murkowski, much to our chagrin. But at the same time, you know, the Republican Party is different than the Democrat Party. And when you get 60 percent of the people um, and their view is just basically being shunned, there's a problem. And 
Um, you'd like to think that that would animate some folks outside um, to help. One of the things I've found is, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it, it just seems so uh, predictable that the left and the progressives, the community organizers of the country are so good at playing together in the sandbox, um, you know, and, and, and helping each other, thinking of, it's why the, all, all the money poured in for ballot measure two, it's why all the money is pouring into this state uh, to prevent Alaskans from having a state constitutional convention. I mean, the vast majority of money on both of those campaigns are from outside sources, and it's because they play together well. They realize that what happens in one state affects others, and I actually admire that about them. They know how to come together, and we have no funding from outside. I think there was a little bit of funding on the ballot measure to vote no on ballot measure two for ranked choice voting, which was really sold as dark money, which is just ironic because we haven't talked about that you and I on the show yet, but that's just another thing that ended up being not at all, um, not at all accurate. And uh, so do you see that uh, on a national level that, you know, we just aren't able to help each other out? And I remember asking a, a couple different national sources about the convention, uh, you know, that we have a million dollars or so coming in from the outside. We have just grassroots small groups, uh, individuals helping with the convention issue. And they're all just, their response is, well, that's an Alaskan issue. And um, so there's not there's not this coordinated it seemingly there's not this coordinated effort to help on these kinds of things. Do you do you see that as as part of your um, you know in your undertakings? Yeah, Jim, one of the things that I think is just a myth that's been sold to the American people is somehow that dark money only exists on the right, and that we're just swimming in it, right? That there are just just buckets of cash sitting around for conservative causes. Uh, and that it's all flowing through dark money. And the reality is that most of the dark money, much of the dark money is on the left. Uh, there are these groups like the 1630 Fund and Arabella Advisors and others that are pushing around huge amounts of cash without disclosing it. So this is, this is very much a, a bipartisan reality. It's not limited to one side. And the other reality is that um, the unions continue to have huge influence in American politics. Uh, they continue to push huge amounts of cash around in, in American politics and in ballot measures, uh, not only limited to whatever individual issue uh, they are um, interested in or professional uh, you know, track, whether it's teachers or something that they're interested in, but just in general, like they just fund the left. Uh, it, it is just a myth that's been sold that somehow, you know, conservatives have the corporations and, and liberals have uh, the unions. And the reality is uh, so many of our corporations are, are either politically neutral or have gone woke in this kind of era of woke capitalism that we live in. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that the unions continue to put huge amounts of money into American politics. And there are, there are just as many billionaires on the left are funding left-wing causes uh, with their fortunes from, from California or New York or Chicago or wherever, um, and all that money flows uh, across our politics and uh, influences the marketplace of ideas. That's not to say money in politics is, is bad or that um, somehow the First Amendment doesn't protect uh, those activities. It's just to say that we've been sold, I think, a myth about how money in politics works. 
Amen. All right, brother, we have to take it. Uh, we have to end this now. I, I'm so grateful for you being on the show today. God bless you in all that you do. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch, uh, Daniel. Uh, thanks for all that you do and keep it up. Well, thanks for all that you do, Jim. You're the one on the front lines of these important fights uh, there in Alaska. And so grateful to uh, the Family Council uh, for the work that it does, and especially on these important issues where uh, judicial activism is is uh, rife and where uh, free speech is under attack. It's it's a joy to be with you in these fights. Amen, brother. Okay, keep it up. We'll be back in touch, guys. Uh, we'll see you next week, and I'm glad you said that. Uh, we'll see you next week.